This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This comes after a lot of the activity that we saw on the weekend. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry saying that for the most part, the majority of people are social distancing, but people in some cases are not. So we're asking you, should the city of Vancouver, they are voting today to allow bylaw officers to issue fines to people not practicing social distancing. Should people who are not practicing social distancing be fined? Head on over to Twitter at CKNW, at Jill Reports, cast your ballot. You can call the buzz line and vote there as well. Just a reminder, if you missed the briefing, it is still ongoing with questions. The main news out of this morning's briefing in BC, Dr. Bonnie Henry says 48 new cases of COVID-19 have been documented. That's since the last briefing on Saturday. That brings to a total 472 cases in BC. There have also been three additional deaths from COVID-19. We're going to talk a little bit more about physical distancing, social distancing, whatever you want to call it, staying two meters away from others if you are outside. And she did mention that during the news conference. It is important for people, if you want to go outside, to be outside. You can be with your family, but she said it is also very important not to be gathering in groups, not to be close to other people. And we must follow those rules if we are going to stop the spread of this virus. Uh, There have also been a lot of myths out there and a lot of speculation on medications and whether or not you can take things like ibuprofen if you think you have COVID-19. Well, my next guest is here to set the record straight on that and some other myths. Dr. Mahiar Etmanan is an epidemiologist, a drug safety expert, and a professor in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC and joins me on the line now. Dr. Etmanan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Can we start with ibuprofen? Because for some reason, it seems that there's a lot of controversy or a lot of uh, different information about so-called dangers when it comes to taking ibuprofen if you think you have COVID-19 or if you do have it. Do you know where that came from? Yes. So a few days ago, um, there was actually a tweet from a French uh, neurologist that um, suggested um, not to use ibuprofen in patients with COVID-19. And this uh, started from um, a research letter by uh, some Chinese physicians where they had a theory that um, just through ibuprofen's mechanism that it may allow the COVID-19 infectious process to, um, for the virus to actually be more active. Um, that plus a couple of anecdotal reports from, again, French physicians that they thought that a few cases um, with patients who were taking ibuprofen and COVID-19 that they did worst. Uh, so basically the evidence is quite anecdotal and uh, perhaps more of a mechanistic um, theory rather than um, any robust clinical uh, data. And so what is the advice then to people who might have heard that or even have heard that anecdotally and are concerned about taking ibuprofen? So the advice is to use uh, uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol. Um, also, uh, it also goes with the brand name of Tempra uh, for those who want to lower their fever. Um, but in many cases with viral infections, the, the, there are um, you know sustained um, days of high fever in in many patients, uh, and sometimes uh, acetaminophen alone does not do the job. So. Um, it is advised that in those cases, ibuprofen to be added 
to uh, help lower the temperature. And if that is the case, um, there is really no evidence right now to uh, tell patients to avoid using ibuprofen um, as an adjunct with acetaminophen. Um, so we do believe that that's, uh, that's okay, uh, at least for now until further evidence um, you know, becomes available. And what about the age of people? Does it matter if you're an elderly person or middle-aged or if you're a child, uh, whether you have COVID or not? Maybe you just have a fever and it's, it's something else completely. But does it matter if you're using ibuprofen uh, depending on the age group? Um, no. I mean, again, generally we advise for patients for uh, mild uh, or, or moderate fevers to use acetaminophen first. And then if necessary, if the temperature is not... Um, coming down, ibuprofen could be an option. Of course, this also depends on other factors, you know, elderly patients. Ibuprofen tends to have a higher risk of um, gastrointestinal bleeds. So other factors have to be considered as well. But generally, uh, right now, the evidence that we have in terms of its safety in COVID-19 patients uh, is not really um, robust enough to advise not to use it in patients who really need it. So should you be worried then, because we were talking as well about an increase in in people that are presumptive cases in that if you're not in a particular group, you won't be tested at this point. And Dr. Henry talked about this this morning, that they will start updating with presumed cases and that if you're isolating and someone in your family has tested positive, if you develop symptoms, they're going to assume you have it, but you won't get the actual test. Uh, so in those cases too, would it be okay for people to be using ibuprofen? Again, um, in a lot of cases, I mean, there are cases of COVID-19 where patients uh, don't have a, you know, don't have a fever. We do know that the majority of patients do experience a fever. And again, in those patients, they could try acetaminophen first. uh, And usually that does do the job. But if it doesn't, uh, there is really no reason not to use ibuprofen as an adjunct if necessary. Uh, We've been talking a lot. Uh, The federal government talked this morning about uh, earmarking millions of dollars to help find a vaccine or to help find a treatment for this. Uh, There's also this talk of hydroxychloroquine, uh, particularly in the United States. And uh, our federal health minister, I think, came out uh, talking about that. Uh, What what can you say about these medications that are being talked about so early on with what doesn't appear to be a lot of medical evidence behind them? So, um, I mean, the main issue with COVID-19 is that, you know, uh, hopefully we'll have the vaccine and other treatments available, but they will take time uh, before they go through trials and they become available to everyone. So uh, scientists are trying to see whether any existing drugs actually can be um, effective against COVID-19. And one of those is hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil, which is a drug that's usually used in patients with arthritis. And um, there is, again, some mechanistic theories and also one small trial from France where they shown that uh, in about 20, 25 patients uh, that were given uh, hydroxychloroquine that the, the viral load or the concentration of the virus after they took the drug actually came down. And so they are doing more trials in the U.S. and other countries to see whether it is um, effective. Uh, is it for somebody like yourself that's a drug safety expert uh, what is your advice because I, I think this is a case that we've not seen before where so many people uh, members of the public are very anxious about getting a drug treatment getting uh, some kind of vaccine or something for this uh, but that's something that generally speaking takes quite some time doesn't it um, it does and again it takes at least um, 
uh, you know, best estimates would be a year before a vaccine is available, before it goes through the trials and the safety tests. Uh, and also, um, there are you know uh, other drugs that that they're looking at as well, and that they may take time uh, before they become available. Uh, again, my suggestion is that th- th- these are still some um, you know interesting data we're getting with hydroxychloroquine, but by I you know by no means we advise patients to take this drug as as a preventive measure uh, without talking to their doctors. All right. Very good advice. Uh, Dr. Edmanon, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what was uh, announced on a federal level earlier today. And Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, talked about aid packages. He talked about what the federal government is going to be doing as far as lending capacity. And one of the sectors very hard hit by this is the agriculture sector. And he said that applications can be made today through Farm Credit Canada. For farmers and people across the agri-food business, I know these are hard times too. So we're also opening up $5 billion in additional lending capacity. Starting today, farmers and producers can apply through Farm Credit Canada for the support they need to keep food growing and get it onto our tables. So that was Justin Trudeau speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Reg Enns, Executive Director of the BC Agriculture Council. Reg, thank you so much for being with us today. Morning, Jill. How are farmers reacting or what are you getting as a sense of, of how farmers are doing with what's happening with COVID-19? Uh, I think like, like all Canadians, farmers are uh, dealing with the, the rapid change of, of the, just the way things are changing. Life this week is different than it was last week and we're all trying to understand what that means the same way that uh, every Canadian is. For farmers uh, in particular, though, so this would be we're getting to the the point of planting season. I'm hearing from some farmers, uh, they're now making that decision. Do we plant and hope that we're able to harvest when it comes harvest time? Will we have enough workers to harvest or do we not plant and hope for government assistance? Great question, Jill, and, and I think that's exactly what farmers are looking for. Uh, you know, as farmers' uh, decisions to plant, what to plant, what crops to plant, uh, are made months in advance, and uh, many of those decisions have been made, and we're at that point now of, of putting seed in the ground, and, uh, and I think farmers are just looking to understand uh, uh, how do they plan in, a, uh, in an uncertain time. And uh, I think today's announcement is, is great news uh, on the surface. Uh, like you, we just heard about this morning. We're looking for details still, but from uh, the little information we do have, it looks very promising. If there are a certain number of farmers then that decide not to plant, though, what do you think, what implications does that have for the food supply? Um, I can't answer that at this point. At, at this point, uh, the industry is saying that, that our food, su- food supply system is really strong and healthy. Uh, you know, they're shifting uh, uh, supplies or the supply chain is shifting from supplying restaurants to grocery stores as consumers change our buying habits. Uh, but at this time, there is, there is no risk to the food supply system. Uh, that's good news, uh, definitely. Uh, there's also the issue of foreign workers are workers who are employed in, in great numbers when it comes to harvest time with the travel restrictions. Is that a concern as far as uh, we don't know at this point if people that would normally be in Canada, in BC to be here for harvest would even be allowed to? 
and it's and it's not even just the harvest. It's it's planting time now. Is uh, uh, we're you know experiencing great spring weather now, and farmers uh, have planned to have. Uh, some of these uh, international workers come into BC and begin that field work of getting the, the plants in the ground and having that, that disruption uh, is, is creating a lot of uncertainty and uh, uh, we are working with both the provincial and federal governments to, to look at how do, we, how do we do that, how do we uh, bring those workers in in ways that, that protect the community and, uh, and other workers uh, while maintaining uh, our supply of safe and healthy food. And I know this was just announced this morning. Justin Trudeau only talked about this morning. And like you said, you and, and many other uh, farmers who will be eligible to apply through Farm Credit Canada are still looking for more details. Uh, is there any sense at this time, though, how much farmers stand to lose or what they would be looking for in compensation? It's way too early to, to tell that story yet. Uh, at this point, we're just trying to make sure that we maintain the, the supply of healthy, safe food and what the financial impact will be is really uncertain. Uh, you mentioned to the shifting then from restaurants, supplying restaurants to supplying grocery stores. Uh, I guess that is it's one kind of glimmer of, of light that I hadn't thought of before. But uh, was it, uh, from what you're hearing, uh, seamless or, or pretty easy to, to shift the, the, what, what farmers are doing or where the produce and where that is going? I, I really don't know. That, that, that's really a, an individual farm and an individual restaurant and, and the supply chain's decision. But uh, I just understand that, that those conversations are happening. And uh, uh, I mean, we have a, a robust supply chain in Canada, and uh, I think they'll make it work. And do you anticipate then in the coming days that farmers will be getting more information from the federal government? We are already receiving emails from Farm Credit Canada, so uh, information is trickling out even this morning. Uh, so we'll be helping disseminate that information to farmers and helping them get in contact with Farm Credit Canada and with the uh, advanced payment program just to uh, look at all the options that are available to them uh, should they need assistance uh, with cash flow. And you kind of touched on this, but I guess the, the difficulty there too is if you, you can get the credit or get the compensation, but if you don't have the workforce to plant, that makes it very difficult. Exactly. Is uh, There's still the, the physical work of farming that needs to be done. All right, uh, Reg, we will leave it there, but thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. So let's take a look at what's happening in some other countries around the world. We have been looking at Italy, where the numbers have been absolutely horrifying, looking at the numbers of deaths and new infections day after day. Uh, global attention now is also shifting a little bit to Switzerland. Let's bring in Matthew Fisher, international affairs columnist and foreign correspondent. Uh, he's worked abroad for 35 years and joins us uh, on the line now. Matthew, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you. Lovely to speak with you again, although the news is all so gloomy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but important to, to see what is happening in uh, other countries and other places around the world. Uh, why do we think or why? Uh, what explanation is being given as far as Switzerland now seeing such an increase in numbers? Well, there are a number of reasons, but I just wanted to say that you mentioned in your introduction, and it's true, you will be providing information for BC and Vancouver, and that's totally understandable, but getting lost a little bit in all of this, other than the big headlines overseas, is that this really is a global pandemic, and so many countries are up against it, and a lot of us don't know that. Switzerland is uh, an example. It's uh, got the second highest rate of infection in the world right now uh, of any country, and yet very few people have heard about it. 
And there are reasons why. It is, uh, of course, uh, it shares a border with Italy. It has an Italian-speaking part of the country. And there were also, in the Lombardy region, which is where the greatest infection rate is in Italy, borders southern Italy, and 68,000 Italians cross that border every single day in normal times to work. And uh, the other thing is Switzerland, if you look at it on a map, uh, it is a hub, but it is a cross-section. All the travel going down to Italy, the truckers, everything else, the trains, they go through Switzerland, so many of them from France, from Germany, uh, and from uh, Northern Europe. Uh, so that is a, a reason as well. But we think of Switzerland as being so clean and so highly organized that when you hear it has the second highest rate in the world, you go, holy cow. And I think that's the point we're at now. But there are other places where it's terrible as well. Iceland, off the charts. Uh, the Netherlands, big problems. France, Germany, Spain uh, is recording many hundreds of deaths uh, every day. And uh, and then we haven't even got into what it's starting to do in places like the Philippines and Africa. And, and you talked about Switzerland, kind of that uh, impression of Switzerland. So is there something there, uh, do you think, that uh, that they didn't look at what was happening at other countries, neighboring uh, them, or, or just got away with them, and we're seeing the numbers now based on, on what was happening a few weeks ago? Well, it's a little bit like Canada in the idea that we don't like to close our borders. Switzerland is neutral, famously neutral, uh, and has had open borders even during the Second World War uh, to people from both sides of that great conflict. So intellectually, philosophically, I think it was very hard for them to close their borders uh, like other countries. And so they were very late, even as the rates were climbing everywhere else. Switzerland kept its borders open until about a week or 10 days ago, all the borders were open, and uh, and then they had to close them. Now it is hermetically sealed at their own borders. Only their own nationals are getting in, and they've cut back uh, very severely on the number of international airplane flights. It's got to be down by 90% or more, but it's it's too late. And you could make that same case for Canada, I think, as well. Canada waited for weeks. I mean, it was only a couple of days ago that Canada stopped flights from China is one of very few countries in the whole world. The Trudeau government is still trying to make trade deals with China. So they left the border with China open, and every day a uh, jumbo jet landed in Vancouver from China, including all those weeks when China was the epicenter of, uh, of the infection. So uh, I think a lot of governments have been slow to close their borders. Remember, in Canada, we first spoke about this. The government said uh, it was racist to do so. And the Canadians uh, had to get this idea of racism out of their heads, and it wasn't China. Well, uh, of course, I'm in no way supporting racism, but I don't think it was racism. If Canadians see that a country has a high infection rate, they're going to fear that country. Race will have nothing to do with it. Right. And, and I think uh, people were taking a bit of a leap of faith and hoping that even while Canada was allowing flights, that there would have been increased screening and measures at the airport. Um, in Switzerland or in, in Italy and parts of Europe, uh, are we seeing a shift as far as uh, you mentioned uh, people or countries, some countries are very uh, reluctant to do things like closing the borders, but certainly we did see others like Denmark, Poland uh, were some of the first ones to do that. They have and now Switzerland uh is quite sealed. The other thing that is going on, and it's not only in Switzerland, 
is there's a kind of martial law that has been imposed, although they're not calling it that. Um, gatherings in Switzerland, as of several days ago, have been uh, restricted. You cannot meet in a group larger than five in Switzerland, uh, which is very small. Germany went even further yesterday and said no group of two pe- or more than two people could meet, uh, which, of course, is uh, about as severe as you could possibly get for a meeting. Uh, police and, uh, and army troops have been mobilized in Europe. Uh, quite a few of them are performing uh, police functions, uh, finding people, arresting people, uh, ordering them back into their homes. That has not happened here, but it will be very interesting to see what the federal government does tomorrow. I am told that the package that is coming from the federal government tomorrow of further restrictions and powers for the federal authorities are, are going to be quite shocking to the Canadian public. Well, we will uh, certainly be tuned in and bringing uh, that to to our listeners as they happen. We will leave it there. Matthew Fisher, thank you so much. Uh, Good to talk to you again, unfortunately, under these circumstances. But thanks again so much. Thank you. Hope to speak with you again. Good luck. Uh, You might be wondering about uh, what appears to be a bit of a different message from some doctors in this province and the president of the doctors of BC. The president calling on physicians across BC to unite behind provincial health officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. Well, yesterday, CKNW's Mike Smith was speaking during a special coverage of COVID-19. He was speaking to Dr. Gerald DeRosa, head of medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital. Hospital. Uh, Dr. DeRosa was also part of a group of doctors calling for stricter measures to be announced from Dr. Bonnie Henry. Our major concern is the message. You know, we fully support the message and all the doctors and healthcare workers, but we're just not seeing that message get through to people. Um, and that, you know, even up to yesterday, I can tell you one of my colleagues at St. Paul's Hospital went out to get some food and they saw a restaurant that had a patio that was fairly full and people lining up to, you know, presumably get in to eat. Um, and that's discouraging that even despite all this pretty clear messaging, um, that that uh, is still occurring. So that was Dr. Gerald DeRosa speaking yesterday with Mike Smith. Dr. Kathleen Ross is on the line with us now, president of Doctors of BC. Uh, Dr. Ross, thanks again. Uh, thanks you for being on the program once again. Oh, thank you. Do you find, is there a united front when it comes uh, to doctors and the fight against COVID-19 in this province? So I I think that that's uh, absolutely true. And doctors are rallying behind Dr. Henry. and We're looking to that one source of truth for our direction and how we should be acting and and what recommendations, uh, you know, that that she makes we'll definitely adhere to. It is the public that uh, that needs to hear that loud and clear. And that's why I took that rare step yesterday to try and mobilize uh, our profession to amplify the message of, of Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, by reaching out to their own uh, patients within their patient network and saying, this is, this is the advice, this is what we need to do, all of us. Uh, but clearly the doctors that signed on to that letter uh, feel and believe that more needs to be done. So I, I think that the public has a really critical role to play here. Uh, and I think that we can encourage the public to to do this. Uh, the message is is being amplified on every on every venue, and as I said, we'll we'll continue to to in reinforce and stand behind the advice that Dr. Henry uh, gives, as Dr. DeRosa said uh, many times that he does.
but we are also hearing from from doctors, from healthcare workers, saying that the situation in the hospitals, in the long term care centers, is much more serious than perhaps what the public is aware of, and they're calling for more measures to take place. So again, there's only one person tasked with saying these are the measures that are appropriate given the state of affairs in our province. Um, and I'm certain that many people have fears, and, and I think that, that Dr. Henry has been phenomenal in keeping the public informed and keeping the profession informed and being that voice of reason and going through the stepwise organized approach uh, that we need in this, uh, in this escalating COVID uh, crisis. Uh, Dr. Henry talked a bit about the mental health of the public, and she even reiterated this morning saying it is okay to go outside and go for a walk. Uh, It's okay to be closer than two meters to an immediate family member, uh, but not okay when we're talking about public gatherings or groups. Do you feel like the public is getting that message? I think that the, the number of venues that we're using to amplify that message is increasing hour by hour and day by day. And uh, I think the public is getting the message. I'm certainly seeing fewer and fewer gatherings. Uh, you know, I'm hearing more uh, social norming of the fact that this is a reality and increasing use in, in social media and other venues to connect with people without actually connecting face-to-face. This is our new social norm for the moment. Uh, but even this weekend, on uh, we had a beautiful weather weekend in Metro Vancouver, and there were numerous reports of people in Squamish, people at the beaches in Vancouver and White Rock, uh, who were not paying attention to these rules. That's got to be concerning for frontline healthcare workers. So I think escalating the message, amplifying the message, uh, and ensuring that that everyone understands that this is what we should be doing is the best way to to combat this. If, uh, you know, if more drastic measures are needed, if we see, you know, a change in the situation day by day, then we'll look to our source of truth and information to, to change our, our guidance. Uh, are there repercussions for doctors or other healthcare workers who speak out and don't talk and don't use that same message? I think we're all on the same team here, and I think everyone is trying to amplify the message the best way that they know how, and I certainly understand some of the frustration when the public doesn't appear to be to be hearing in some circumstances, as we saw on the weekend. But I would hope, with the escalation in this public messaging through multiple different venues, that that people will actually do what is expected and actually ordered by our by Dr. Henry. Right, but when we're talking healthcare workers and doctors, so they received a letter with with messaging that to, to be used, talking points to be used if they're being interviewed or they're being they're speaking publicly. If a member, a doctor, or a member of the health of a healthcare team speaks out and it's not that message, are there repercussions for them? No, no. I mean, we are all individuals, of course. But the reason I put together the wording and wanted to make sure that physicians knew what to say is that a lot of our members are not used to connecting or spreading this message in this format, and I didn't want to leave them unsupported in, in saying, here's some things that you could say. Put it out in whatever in whatever venues you have available. Use your patient network. Our patients are our allies here, and they can certainly help to make sure that this message is reinforced. Uh, we're hearing from other groups uh, this call for donations of uh, protective gear. Do doctors in BC have enough protective gear to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic? So where we're at right now, uh, we're, we're doing okay. Our number of new cases, what we're managing, how we're managing our supplies and trying to concentrate them for right now is okay. I think if the public gets engaged and, and you know, follows Dr. Henry's orders, then there's a good chance we're not going to need uh, more than what we have coming towards us right at the moment. 
but the, there are some clinics that are running low, and we're working both in the hospital and out of the hospital to ensure that our healthcare providers are protected with the equipment they need. So at this point, is there a need, do you think, for the public to donate if they have excess materials like masks and hand sanitizer and such? I think there's been a great deal of stockpiling in the public that was unnecessary. So if people have collected excessive supplies, if there's something that they can donate to their local clinic or local hospital because they did that bulk panic purchasing, as many did, that, that would be appreciated. Let's give these supplies to the people who need to protect themselves so that they can keep caring for the entire population. Uh, at this point, do you know, are there any doctors in BC who have contracted COVID-19? Uh, actually, I think Dr. Henry would probably be the best one to answer that question. Okay, but do you, do you know the answer to the question? I, I don't at this time, though. No. All right. Uh, what advice then do you have? Because it is a very stressful time for people, whether they're going into long-term care facilities, so although pe- the re- visiting is, is being restricted, um, people who are in hospital uh, for various reasons. What advice do you have for the public? What can the public do to protect doctors as best they can? I think the public actually can stay home, uh, stay home except for, for necessary uh, outings. As Dr. Henry has said, going out for a walk uh, if you're, you know, that two meters away from other people is, is great for your mental health and great for, for your physical health. Um, but we don't want you gathering. We don't want you within two meters of others. Stay home. And if you need to come uh, to, to seek medical attention, please reach out and speak to your, to your family physician uh, first. And, uh, and we can help you to determine what's the most appropriate course. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Dr. Ross, thank you again so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care. Well, a group, call, a group called Safe Care BC is asking the public if you have any personal protective equipment or you've been uh, somebody who maybe stockpiled hand sanitizer in the past, consider protecting healthcare workers by donating it. Jennifer Lyle is the CEO of Self Care BC and joins me on the line now. Jennifer, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what exactly uh, are you asking uh, the uh, members of the public to do? Well, basically what we're doing is we're asking the public to help support healthcare workers who are on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. So um, it's really straightforward. Uh, We're just asking people to go to our website, safecarebc.ca slash operation protect. And then you just indicate what you have, how much you have of it, and donate uh, much-needed supplies. So things like surgical masks, hand sanitizer, gloves, um, these things are all very much needed by healthcare workers right now. And, and that's what we're asking the public to help us out with. And when you say things like that, uh, I would assume we're talking about things that are still unused and unopened? Yes. So we're asking, on our website, it lists everything that we're accepting and the condition it needs to be in. But yes, it does need to be unused and unopened. And how did this come about as far as, is this a a coalition of of different groups that have come together or different partner organizations that have come together to try and, and fill the gaps here? Yeah, it's been a real community effort. So, um, you know, in our role as the Safety Association for the Continuing Care Sector, uh, we've been getting regular reports from uh, long-term care homes and home care providers that are saying uh, we're running low on supplies. So uh, we've been working with the Ministry of Health, uh, the Denominational Health Association, BC care providers to to flag these issues. And for this particular effort, it's been um, a real community effort. We've had the City of Vancouver come on board, the City of Surrey, Big Steel Box, Tahoe Industries, Helijet, and BC Care providers to, to help support this. 
And because we're hearing from doctors that they're saying in the hospitals, at least right now, they're doing okay as far as the medical supplies. So I'm imagining that could change in the future. So is this looking at more, like, so like you said, long-term care facilities or different facilities where, where these things are extremely important as well? What we're doing is we're actually working with the provincial supply chain. So all the donations that we're rooting that are acceptable for use, we're going to be uh, working with uh, PHSA uh, to ensure that they're added to the provincial supply chain, which means they will be available to the entirety of the healthcare sector. So uh, people working in care homes, uh, people working home care uh, organizations, hospitals, various settings, and, and again, just ensuring that we have the equipment on hand to keep our healthcare workers safe. And what kind of a response? I know it's still pretty new. What kind of a response have you had so far? We've seen a a lot of traffic to our website today, so uh, we're getting a lot of good interest. We've had a number of donations already come in. We actually just recently had a restaurant uh, donate a 1,000 pairs of gloves. So we're getting some good response. We're hoping to continue the momentum into the next few days and see some more donations rolling in. Interesting, too. I wondered that when looking at the list, we've heard a lot. I think people who had never heard of an N95 mask before have heard that phrase more in the last couple of weeks than ever before. But are those the kind of thing I would imagine there might be more people that would have hand sanitizer on hand rather than N95 masks or surgical masks? Yeah, and you know what? We'll take it. We'll take it all because again, the the need for having these supplies um, is there, and we want to ensure that our healthcare workers are protected. Um, I will also note that you'll find these supplies in some pretty surprising areas. So, for example, N95 masks are are used in construction. Uh, they're used in some farming operations. Uh, we see gloves used in the restaurant industry. Um, so we know that those those supplies are out there, and we're just really encouraging folks to support our healthcare workers in this fight. And how is the how is it physically happening with the the whole social and physical distancing? How are you able to to take in these donations? You know, make sure that they're sanitary and get them to where they need to go. Yeah, so we're taking a number of precautions with that, and that's why we're not having uh, public. Uh, just drop-in donation centers because we do want to ensure that we're, we're following uh, the practices that are being put forward by the provincial health officer. So anybody who makes a donation, there'll be two options. You can either um, choose to, to drop it off, and we'll provide you with the details on that um, and how, we, how we're taking those measures to keep everyone safe. Alternatively, if you are not able to leave your house or if you have a large donation you'd like to put forward, um, we will work with you to, uh, to do a pickup and donation. And again, we're taking we're taking caution and care to make sure that everybody is protected, so we're not uh, spreading any any infection. All right, uh, sounds good. And again, people can go to the website, the Safe Care BC website, to learn more about that. Uh, thank you so much, Jennifer, for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, we just heard from the Premier and the Finance Minister about the $5 billion action plan put into place to help British Columbians dealing with the effects of COVID-19. It includes $2.8 billion spent on helping people and services, $2.2 billion for businesses. A long list of items really gone through there, mainly by Carol James. She's now answering questions from the media. Here's just a little bit of what she said moments ago. For those people People struggling in the face of reduced income. They can now defer their hydro bills and they can use BC Hydro's customer crisis fund which offers up to $600. ICBC will be working to offer more driver license renewals online or over the phone so fewer people have to go in person. And customers
customers on a monthly auto plan payment may be able to defer their payments as well for up to 90 days with no penalty. Let's bring in Keith Baldry, Global BC Chief Political Reporter. Keith, thanks so much. I know it's a busy day for you. Oh, and things just keep happening at such a rapid pace. It's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, we got this announcement again, the $5 billion action plan. That was just a small, small part of it uh, that we heard from Carol James. What else did the government announce today? Well, I think one of the big ones is a $1,000 emergency benefit, uh, one-time payment tax-free. If uh, you basically, They haven't defined exactly who would get that, but I think it would be uh, if you're laid off or, or substantially reduced hours. Uh, a promise to ensure nobody is evicted as a result of COVID-19. Um, there's going to be a financial relief for renters. I think renters and laid-off people are going to be the big beneficiaries of what's being laid out today. Again, we don't have all the details yet, but $5 billion is a, a lot of money. There's a lot of tax deferrals that's going to take place. The carbon tax increase set for April 1st will not uh, go ahead in the short term. You mentioned, you just heard her talk about um, deferring hydro payments. ICBC also likely, if you're on a monthly installment, uh, there's going to be work done to, uh, if you need to, to defer those payments. Uh, there's an increase in the climate uh, action tax plan uh, credits, which uh, translates to family four. I think the figure was $634. Uh, the trick is going to be how fast they can roll this out. Uh, I'm already hearing from people trying to access any federal government service right now Right now is a challenge because so many people are not working on the federal civil service. And one of the questions was, to Carol James, you know, uh, what would be the impact on the public service in B.C.? And it's really interesting if, if literally the bureaucracy or the lack of bureaucracy may prevent some of this from rolling out as quickly as possible. But nevertheless, $5 billion is a lot of money. And it's not stopping there, Jill. I mean, John Horgan says this is this is going to be ongoing. We I mean, hope the next two months is the worst of it. But nobody knows. We're in a completely new world, uncharted territory. Absolutely. Uh, where is all the money coming from? Uh, Debt, basically. This is so Carol James' budget, which was just introduced a little more than a month ago, had a tiny surplus of about $213 million or so, with a, with a you know, significant cushion, uh, contingency fund and forecast allowance. But now, no, you add $5 billion onto that figure, which turns her, her um, budget into a massive deficit, which had been anticipated. There's no surprise. And what's interesting, I think the public won't care. I think the public wants, views government now differently, that it's there to serve people and to protect people. And if that means running up a huge deficit, so be it. And I don't think you're going to see much squawking about this move today. Uh, The Trudeau government increased its deficit by $82 billion with its uh, uh, care package. Uh, The federal government was uh, 3% of GDP. Today's is 2% of the provincial GDP. But desperate times require desperate measures. And extraordinary times require extraordinary measures. And I think that's certainly what you're seeing today. Uh, Absolutely. And you mentioned this and uh, the delay and the increase to the carbon tax, uh, the delay and the increase to sugary drinks, uh, just to some of the other uh, things Mm -hmm. mentioned today. Uh, But really focusing on how Housing, because there are a lot of people, I'm sure, out there right now thinking, I don't know where my next rent payment is coming from and wondering what uh, the next month, the next two or three months is going to look like. There's a lot of fear out there. I, got, I received an email from, I'm getting so many emails, it's unbelievable, over, over COVID. But this one woman tells me she's absolutely caught in this horrible situation where her and her husband had been planning to move to England and had given their notice. And now the, the landlord has told her, you've given your notice, um, You've got to go. Well, she can't apply anymore to England. Um, it's uh, it's off limits. So she's stuck. She may be her and her family may suddenly become homeless as a result of this, and they're comfortable middle class people. 
So that's just an example of just some of the extraordinary situations some people are finding themselves in. Perhaps this, what we're seeing today, will, will protect this woman. I, I certainly hope so. But there's a lot of people going through a lot of hurt right now. Uh, absolutely. And like you said, we're expecting more uh, announcements and more news on this because there is still some confusion. And you mentioned this off the top, the $1,000 for every person. Uh, it's still unclear. How do you apply for that? Is there a requirement or you have to prove something to apply and to get that? Uh, they also talked about uh, increasing the benefits and I've forgotten the actual name of it now, but it was the, um, it would be, what was it? $218 for every adult, $64 for every child. But I think there is some confusion on how do you actually apply and get that additional funding? Yeah. And that's not clear yet. A lot of this will be online, one assumes. But again, if anybody's trying to access government services right now, uh, it can be a challenge because there's so many people not working. They're either, they're either in self-isolation or they they're, have mild symptoms. Uh, they're staying home, taking precautions. Uh, just walking around the legislature, uh, there's nobody here, really. Uh, I mean, today there is because there's um, there's 12 MLAs in attendance in the House at 1.30, but a lot of offices here are barely staffed. Uh, and same with government buildings that surround where I am, where a lot of the people who will process these applications, presumably, work. They're not working right now because they're at home. So this is another big challenge governments face to, to protect their services. Uh, the human resource element is a big part of it, and it's uh, just like every other business that has people at home, so does government. And I know this is this news conference was focused on the economic relief and the economic plan in dealing with this. We also got the update earlier today from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. Do you get the sense that we are going to see more extreme measures put in, whether it's from the provincial government, from the health officer, as far as fighting COVID-19? Well, you know, we've had a lot of conver- I've had a lot of conversations both in the briefings with Dr. Henry and with Adrian Dix about this, and with Mike Farnworth. How far do we go? Uh, there's a feeling right now amongst the government and Bonnie Henry is that we are in a de facto lockdown situation where so many things are closed or cut off, or whether you're encouraged not to participate or go out as much as you normally do. So a lot of it is sort of voluntary, uh, and I, I I think they're resisting moving to a more draconian drastic shutdown of all aspects of life. Um, and I, uh, So again, I'd be surprised if we, if we go that far. I think a word of advice to, for people who want a, a complete lockdown, I think the piece of advice to them is then act like there's a lockdown yourself. Don't wait for government to lock you down. Um, isolate yourself and don't go into stores and don't unless you absolutely need to. So people can act like there is a lockdown. And I think that's the sort of the philosophy and message Dr. Barney Henry is advocating. Absolutely. All right, Keith, we will leave it there. I'm sure we will chat with you again this week. Thank you so much. As you've been hearing on the news, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart says the time for being nice is over and the city says it will now crack down on those found to be in violation of the city order to maintain proper social distance. That is an actual physical distance apart during the COVID-19 pandemic. Earlier today, council passed new enforcement measures that include those fines. Sarah Kirby-Young is a Vancouver City Councillor, she joins us now to take a look at exactly what was passed and how they will be enforced. Councillor Kirby Young, thank you so much. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, what exactly did Council, I understand it was a unanimous vote, what did you vote on? So Council voted on um, amending the emergency bylaw that was passed last week to include enforcement powers and abilities. And those enforcement powers very clearly allow city staff to find businesses um, in the event of non-compliance with physical distancing orders, as well as individuals. And how much can they be fined? 
And businesses can be fined under the Vancouver Charter up to a maximum of $50,000, and individuals can be fined up to $1,000 if they are ignoring orders that were passed under that state of emergency. And how would that work then if a bylaw officer says, say, goes to Kitts Beach and sees a group of 10 people? How does a bylaw officer then physically get close enough without breaking the rules to ticket them? Uh, well, the bylaw officer can provide tickets, and, and I'm hoping a lot of this happens through conversation. Unfortunately, some thought felt it was necessary to take steps because we were seeing um, really, um, really sort of irresponsible behaviors from a number of people, and and really detrimental and dangerous behaviors. And so, this sends a clear message that council is serious about people. Um, sort of supporting and complying with these physical distancing measures, and we don't have to be in a position to issue those tickets or to further move towards shutdowns and shut down our parks and beaches. Nobody wants to do that right now um, because people need their exercise. But uh, if we are forced to take additional measures, then Council now has the ability to do that. Uh, when we talk about something, because one of the, the bigger issues this weekend, too, or where people were very close together was the seawall. It's almost impossible if you are walking on the seawall and there's somebody walking towards you to be two metres away from them. So what should people do if they're on the seawall? We have 240 parks in the city, uh, which is great. Um, and I think that uh, there's an arid opportunity to get out and explore a park in your neighbourhood that you may not necessarily have been to. Don't always go to the most popular ones. Consider going at less busy times of the day. Um, early in the mornings or later in the evening. So we're all going to have to adjust our patterns in order to keep everybody safe. Uh, so are you asking people then to stay closer to home? And if they do, like Dr. Bonnie Henry said, you can still go outside. You can go outside with a family member. Don't go outside with members, uh, big groups. Uh, are you encouraging people then to stay closer to home and in their neighbourhoods? We are. We are encouraging people to stay home. It's the best thing you can do. Going outside is not intended to be an opportunity for socializing. It's intended to be an opportunity for exercise, just for physical and and, and mental health. And we recognize that people need that. But again, you should only be doing that with the people that you cohabitate with, with your immediate family members that are living with you. Um, It's not a chance to go meet up with friends or groups or go to socialize or, you know, have picnics or you know, gather at the beach. That's not what this is about. And if people don't take this seriously, we are seeing the spread happen. And I cannot stress that enough. We really need everybody to step up in these extraordinary times and do your part. Uh, So the motion that was passed today, does that give the power from this point on? Or have there been any tickets uh, under previous, uh, uh, previous laws or previous powers issued to businesses? It gives the power from this point on. When Council passed the state of emergency last week, it did not include the enforcement power. It now includes the enforcement power. Are there any concerns, and I know these are pretty strong words that Mayor Kennedy Stewart was tweeting out earlier today. Uh, This is a mayor, though, that wasn't that long ago wearing his contempt of court, wearing his breaking the law at uh, Kinder Morgan as a badge of honour. Are there any concerns that this is a mayor that flouted the law then and that people aren't going to listen to him? I I hope... That I'm not going to comment on the mayor's own personal history and his criminal charges that, that he has with regards to that. Um, what I'm going to say right now is that this is a time for everybody to respect and support the law, and it's for your own safety. It's, it's, it's for yourself, it's for your family, it's for your neighbours, it's for seniors, it's the grocery store workers, the, all those medical personnel that are going to work so that while well, others have the ability to stay home and they don't. Um, and so um, this is, you know, leave, leave for yourself because it's the right thing to do. Do it because you care about keeping everybody healthy and keeping everybody safe.
Absolutely. And hopefully people did see the social media posts and the pictures from this weekend and realize just how dangerous and putting people in danger uh, that did. Uh, Are there enough bylaw officers, do you think, that they will be able to enforce this and really be at the areas where we've seen, and again, hopefully it stops, but where we've seen people breaking these rules, particularly last weekend? Yeah, council asked those questions and um, of, of our staff, and that was important to us that we pass things that we have the ability to enforce, and we have property inspectors, and we're assured that we do have enough of those people um, to do this work, um, and this work will be done by city staff, not by the VPD. It's something that um, we're not going to be taking them away from their core services, um, and we do have enough property inspectors, and we have the ability to deploy staff as well towards this work if it's needed. And do you know, will there be a focus more on businesses rather than social gatherings or public spaces? I think the focus is, is, you know, first and foremost on businesses and uh, those that are not practicing uh, physical distancing measures and putting people in harm's way. Um, But when we see the kind of behavior that we saw at the weekend with, you know, hugely crowded beaches or people that are playing, you know, contact sports and soccer games or basketball games outside, um, that will, those sorts of gatherings will be shut down pretty quickly. Those are not okay. And when we talk about uh, the, the sweeping powers, because Vancouver's a little bit different with the Vancouver Charter, uh, we saw earlier today the Premier in Ontario shut down non-essential businesses. If things don't improve, does the City of Vancouver have that power or would that have to go to the province? The City does have the ability to do that now under the state of emergency that was declared last week. It can um, limit the, the use um, of any premises within the city of Vancouver, if it chooses to do that. And has there been discussion on if that is something that the city is prepared to do, if it doesn't see things change? There has been discussion on that. Um, There's a lot of active conversations happening with council and with staff now. Um, Obviously, we prefer to be coordinated with the other municipalities in Vancouver and with the province, um, so that because people do move across and we want to make sure that people are consistent and the messages that are being sent out in the signals are consistent, so there is more confusion for people. Um, But if that's necessary, then yes, that is a step that Vancouver can take. Uh, It looks like the city of Surrey has ruled that all gatherings of over 10 people are saying that over 10 people is discouraged. Uh, Is that in line, do you think, with what Vancouver is saying today as well? Yeah, I think Vancouver is saying stay home unless you need to go out. I mean, and and this is hopefully becoming clearer and clearer, more and more clear to people and it's common sense. You should only be going out if you need to get groceries. Um, if you have a medical issue, um, if you're getting some, you know, regular exercise for your mental, physical well-being. Um, but we don't want people going out for discretionary purposes to so limit the traffic, um, limit your, the ability and, uh, when you come into contact with people. And that is the best way that we're going to beat this. All right. Uh, Councillor Kirby Young, I know it's a busy day. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. Have a great day. Next story is a little bit sweeter. And yes, that was a bit of a play on words. words. BC Girl Guides have about 800,000 boxes of cookies currently in storage across the province. And as you can imagine, they're not moving anywhere anytime soon. And that's because of COVID-19. So how can you help? Well, that's where my next guest comes in. Diamond Isinger joins me on the line, Provincial Commissioner with the BC branch of the Girl Guides of Canada. Diamond, so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me today. I can't even imagine what that looks like, having that many Girl Guide cookies, although probably not out of the ordinary to have that before the big campaign to sell them. Uh, But I would imagine with COVID-19, things have changed a lot for you. Things have 
changed very greatly. This is our usual volume of cookies, but the fact that we are currently unable to sell them in the ways that we would um, of having girls go door to door, for example, or sell outside of grocery stores or sell in other in-person ways is really challenging us to come up with some new innovative and most importantly, safe ways that girls can sell. Absolutely. So what have you come up with so far? Well, we're working on some solutions, but a few of them so far include options for girls to accept pre-orders. Um, lots of people in British Columbia know a girl guide in their life. That might be a girl who's a neighbor down the street or a coworker who's a volunteer. We're encouraging members of the public who are interested in supporting us to get in touch with those people and let them know that they're interested in cookies when it's safe to fulfill those orders. That gives our volunteers and our girls a lot of assurance to know how they can quickly sell them when uh, sales can resume. We're also working, though, with lots of individuals and businesses who are potentially interested in taking on bulk amounts of cookies to support us in different ways. So, for example, cookies make a really awesome gift to clients and customers, people who are going above and beyond in this time right now. Um, They're an inexpensive and delicious little treat to provide to people. And so we're interested in finding some of those options too. But we also hear from a lot of members of the public right now who are saying, you know, logistically not sure how I can get my hands on cookies, but I'd love to buy some cookies for donation to other people who um, are deserving of that type of donation. So for example, local food banks or uh, frontline healthcare workers who are working exceptionally hard right now. So we're happy to facilitate those opportunities as well. Yeah, I imagine you're going to get a few calls uh, for that exact thing, trying to, to pay it forward and to give people a little something as a, as a thank you. Um, so if somebody was to order it now, is there, just so I make sure I have this right, can people pay for them, say pre-order them or pay for them online and then know that they're going to get them in the future or, or how does that work? So we don't currently have a online sales system. We think that the person-to-person opportunity to sell cookies is really key for girls. It equips them with really amazing entrepreneurial skills, public speaking, money management, and so much more. And so we don't currently have the infrastructure for that, but we are happy to accept payments from um, individuals and donations from individuals who are interested in um, paying it forward, as you said, or um, getting their hands on cookies. The pre-orders don't necessarily have to involve paying at this time, though, it could just be an indication of interest to that, you know, wonderful brownie down the street or that girl guide leader that you know, to let them know that you'll take a couple boxes or a case when they're able to get them to you. All right. And I understand as well, because people are still uh, getting essential goods. And at this point, uh, stores, uh, some stores are open. I know Canadian Tire had been uh, brought on a number of locations for stepping up to help. Is that still happening? Yes, in British Columbia, we have a few Canadian Tire stores so far and more joining us that are, that are helping us uh, retail some of these cookies um, on a short-term basis to support us in this time. And so certainly um, we encourage members of the public, if they're at a Canadian Tire, to check in and see if they have any cookies in stock. Um, but we're also collaborating with some other small businesses and other folks in British Columbia who are able to help us distribute cookies in a safe and responsible way um, in this time where we're really prioritizing folks' health and safety. Absolutely. I mean, I was even thinking because we've been seeing on uh, social media in some places people setting up little uh, kiosks in their front yards to give people essentials if they need them. But my guess is you probably can't even do that with these because of the safety issue. You can't have like a communal source. Even if somebody was to purchase a bunch, put them on a table for free in the neighborhood, I would imagine there's probably issues with that too. 
There's all kinds of tricky considerations right now that certainly we're thinking through. Um, I have seen some creative solutions, though, certainly from neighbors who um, may have lots of cookies in their house right now. For example, some of our Girl Guide volunteers whose living rooms are full of cookies for the foreseeable future, many of them have been um, uh, distributing cookies to their neighbors as a way of brightening their day. And I've seen some of them do no-contact drop-offs on people's uh, front steps, for example, or other creative ways of getting cookies into people's hands. <laughs> well, we got, and I mean, that does make sense when we're talking about that. We are still at the stage. I mean, things could change, but we are still at the stage where restaurants are still allowed to do takeout, takeout and delivery. And so I would think as long as those guidelines, the safety guidelines were being held, that would still be okay as long as there's not that personal uh, connect, uh, contact. Yeah, Girl Guides is monitoring the ongoing advice of health authorities. Um, obviously, the situation is quickly evolving, and so we want to make sure that whatever we're doing is really making sure that our members, but also our broader communities, are um, healthy and safe. I think it's really important, though, to realize that this cookie campaign, um, these 800,000 boxes, are fundamental to everything that we do as an organization. We have 18,000 girls and women who are part of Girl Guides in British Columbia this year currently, and all of our programming is supported by the sale of cookies. All of our camps, every sleepover, every science experiment, every fun weekly meeting with your guide group, all of that is powered by cookies. And so we um, look forward to in the coming weeks and months, figuring out opportunities to sell these cookies so that we can sustain that type of programming. All right. And um, this might be looking far too far ahead and, and uh, not to, to be negative. Do they expire though? Do, is there any concern on how long they're going to be in storage? They have a healthy shelf life. They were very recently produced um, just before the campaign. So we do have a number of months that we can uh, sell them within. So we look forward to being able to do that, hopefully in a situation that's back to normal in the near future. But in the meantime, we're keeping an eye on the advice of health authorities to inform how we proceed. All right. Uh, Good advice. And uh, hopefully things get back on track. Diamond, thanks so much. Good to chat with you again. Thank you. Have a great day. You likely heard this in the news yesterday. Canada coming out saying it would not be sending athletes to Tokyo for the 2020 Olympic Games unless they were postponed. Well, earlier today, we heard from International Olympic Committee member Dick Pound. He first told USA Today that the Games would be postponed, likely to 2021. He also spoke earlier today with Global News. The IOC has pulled the the trigger on this. There's going to be a postponement, but they want to be able to put together all of the very, very complicated elements of a postponement. And if you simply say the games are postponed, everybody will be whining about not being certain as to when they're going to be and where and all that sort of stuff. We also heard today from Justin Trudeau during his daily uh, debrief, his news conference about COVID-19. He was speaking this morning and acknowledged that move by Canada's Olympic organizers to boycott the Games and saying that it was not an easy one to make. I know this is heartbreaking for so many people, athletes, coaches, staff and fans. But this was absolutely the right call and everyone should follow their lead. Let's bring in Howard Kelsey. He is a Canada Basketball Hall of Fame inductee, also a leader in the Canadian basketball community. Uh, He's been a driving force when it comes to Canadian basketball for decades, uh, representing Canada twice at the Olympics. Howard, thanks for taking some time with us today. My pleasure, Jill. What is your reaction to uh, Canada coming out yesterday and saying this and now what it looks like, the postponement of the Games? 
uh, extremely positive and also proud that Canada took the lead worldwide. Took a lot of courage to be the first country at the queue and uh, set the tone. Uh, having been a recipient of a boycott in the 1980s, I know exactly what it means for an Olympian to be told on your first one. That was my first. My second one was L.A., where we came fourth. You're going to have to wait four years in our case. In this one, I'm hoping that it's no more than one. Absolutely. I was surprised. I think a lot of people were surprised that it took this long because, again, like so many events around the world, nobody was calling for the complete cancellation, but saying, look, we don't know where this thing's going. You need to postpone these games. I totally agree with you. Again, there's a lot behind the scenes, but in the athlete category, of which that's more my lens than anything, I'm more of an athlete person, general manager type person than a coach. Uh, the business side of things is what's delaying it. But at the end of the day, it's a no-brainer. Uh, the power of the people behind the Olympics is they can stagger every single thing in the world that's sports-related, and all you do is calibrate it for the next four years. So, for example, my brother Doug, uh, who used to run uh, TransLink here as COO, he does the same for TriMet. He sits on the board at the World Track and Field Championships that we're going to be in uh, Oregon next year, where Nike is worldwide headquarters. They will just have to stagger everybody else by the next four years. So instead of 2020, 2024, 2028, I would think you would go 2021, 25, 29, 33. I don't think it, I know it's not easy, but the end of the day is if they really want it to happen in a one-year delay based on what we're facing today is much bigger than sport and a worldwide health. And more importantly, I think, is the economic crisis, very simply, do the right thing, delay it a year, and have it next year when hopefully our world is back to normalcy. Absolutely. And sorry, just so I'm clear, then are you saying that it wouldn't be that we delay or that it gets delayed to 2021 and then back on track? Would it would that delay then be for each following Olympics? Well, again, I'm not going to take any presumptuous position as to how many years there should be between an Olympics, but normally in history, there's always been four unless there's a war, mm-hmm. or in the case of the uh, Moscow boy- boycott, the invasion of Afghanistan. So if it's going to be a four-year delay, let's say for sure we can all agree on one thing. It should be at least till 2021, which is a one-year delay. Now, whether you calibrate it between 2021 and 2024, which I believe is Paris, or whether you believe it 2021 and 2025 Paris, that would be another decision they'd have to make. But again, you have so many different other sporting events, the World Championships, the FIFA soccer, et cetera, et cetera. That may be where the complications lie. Hmm. But a one-year delay overall should not be that complicated, other than from what I understand that they've sold the Olympic residences, as we have here in our Olympic villages, those people may have to take possession a year later. Right, because, uh, like, exactly, because the athletes would be there a year later as well. Like you said, it's, uh, we tend to focus on the sport and the athletes, but it's the business of it uh, and everything else that's all interconnected. The athletes, speaking for athletes, I've been one all my life, mm-hmm. athletes are extremely flexible and resilient. Just tell them what they need to know, tell them when they need to play, and they just got an extra year to train. The only athletes here that will be disappointed will be the ones that actually are at the end of their careers and getting maybe a little bit long in the tooth age-wise. Why would an athlete be so upset about a one-year delay? They know they're going to go again, and they know they're going to get more time to train. 
And and you mentioned all of the other events. Would it change things then, or I guess they would just have to shift the schedule on, as far as qualifying events and other things that the athletes would be doing? Yes. For example, in the case of basketball, which obviously would affect us hugely, because Victoria got the unprecedented opportunity this summer to have all of our NBA guys for the first time ever in Victoria, 23rd to 28th. But overall, yes, it's disappointing. We have to congratulate Clint Hamilton and Glenn Grunwald and their team for putting it together. But if they know that they're going to have it next year, we'll still have the same opportunity. It's not that devastating of news other than the delay. And in the context of a world crisis, this is not a sports crisis. This is an economic crisis and possibly health crisis that we don't even know the level of. A one-year delay is really not that big in the overall context. Absolutely, and I think everybody, uh, I would hope, would agree with that. Uh, Howard, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, and hopefully we only have good news here going forward. And my message to the community is don't shake the pop can, don't panic, stay calm, and leaders, don't talk, action, precise action. That's what you're elected for. Now do your job.